Just turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in this chapter quite a bit this evening. Not looking at every single item, but looking at a good deal from verse 21 on. So I'm just going to read as we begin verse 21. Paul exhorts the Ephesian Christians and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the gifts you have given to your church. Yes, the things that you provide for our daily need, food and clothing and employment. But thank you for those spiritual gifts that you give to your church, elders, deacons, the gifts of helps, the ordinary gifts of service to you. And we thank you for the people who have written hymns that express so well the desires of the true Christian by your grace, that those desires to be more like Jesus Christ, to be more uh, useful, to be more heavenly minded, and to be good to one another. So please now draw near to us and bless the word of God as it is opened and declared. May your Holy Spirit attend all of the words that are spoken and direct them to the needs of your people. Bless us, our God, as we look to you through the name and merits of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we, by the way, I really appreciate the sitting forward. It is uh, it is a great help to a preacher to be able to just sweep across the faces, not scattered. That's that's really excellent. Thank you so much. But last week we finished the letter of the Lord Jesus to the church in Laodicea. And as I pondered what to do next, it seemed good to consider this passage because it is thematically related to those seven letters to the seven churches. Those letters tell us what the Lord wants the churches to be and to do. And in Ephesians 5, especially this latter section from verses 21 and on, he writes to the church members in Ephesus about what he wants the church to be and how he, Jesus, labors to bring the church to what he wants the church to be. So we're going to look at that this evening. We're going to look, first of all, at the structure of the passage. Many times when we read our Bibles, it's easy to pass over from verse to verse to verse and to say, well, this verse, I understand this verse, I understand this verse, I understand this verse, and not to see the interrelated connection, which is so important in our understanding of our Bible. So um, it's good to see the structure of the passages that we study together. Here Paul is giving exhortations about the lives of these believers. Uh, as, as has been noted, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are about doctrine and the last three chapters, four, five, and six, are about practice. And the doctrines fund the foundation of the chapters, uh, the foundations of the practice. The, uh, to put it a different way, the imperatives of Scripture, what we are to do, rest down upon the indicatives of Scripture, what we are to know and believe. What we are to know and understand about the gospel tells us how we are to live in the gospel. We're in that section where we are being taught how to live the gospel as Christian people. That's what it's all about. Verse 15, he urges them to be wise, to walk in a wise manner. Um, he 
uh, tells them that they are to walk circumspectly, watching the way that they walk. He joins to this their corporate worship, especially their singing, so that they are to walk in a certain way and then they are to worship in a certain way, especially in their singing. They are to be thankful to God. And then he adds to all of this exhortation about their relationships. And now we enter into this large section of the epistle about relationships. They are to, according to verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. With regard to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to think of him reverently. We are to think with adoration. We are to think with uh, a regard to his will. What does he want me to do? How does he want me to live? And so we are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Reverently thinking about the will of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to regulate our relationships to one another with Christ and his will in mind. The believers are to find their role in their relationships to one another, at the same time, maintaining reverence to the Lord by those relationships. It's interesting to see how this plays out in the relationships which Paul lists here in this portion of Ephesians. In verses 22 to 23, the largest section in, in this part of the letter, he treats husbands and wives, the relationship between husbands and wives. And then in verses 6, 1 to 4, he treats children and fathers. And in verses 5 to 9 of chapter 6, he treats slaves and masters. And you might think that all of these involve two-way submissions, reciprocal submissions, because it says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. You, in other words, to put it a little differently, not only must wives submit to their husbands, but husbands must submit to their wives. This is not the way Paul writes, actually. Uh, in each pair, wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters, there is submission mainly on one group. And you might tempt, be tempted to think, well, that's unfair. If wives have to submit to their husbands, how is that fair? They have to do all the submitting. Uh, and if uh, children have to submit to their fathers, well, fathers don't have to submit to their children. How is how is how does that work? And if slaves have to submit to their masters, doesn't that put them at a terrible disadvantage? And they are likely to be abused. How does that work? You might be tempted to call God unfair, but it is not. Husbands, fathers, and masters have an obligation to fulfill to those on the other side. Wives have a relationship to their husband. Husbands have a relationship to their wives with obligations, obligations that are serious and weighty. Working backwards in this list of obligations, slaves submit to masters. Obviously, that's the nature of slavery. Even the benign, the kind slavery of Jewish religion in the Old Testament, it was merciful. Um, the masters don't submit to the slaves. That would undo the relationship. They would no longer be masters. Masters, though, do have obligations. They have obligations to fulfill according to Paul's directives for masters, and that's not submission, but there are still real serious obligations. The duty of submission is the slaves, but the masters have real obligations. The same is true of children and parents. The children have an obligation to submit to their 
parents, and specifically Paul lists fathers. It's not unfair. Fathers have a difficult duty to fulfill in being Christ-like fathers. And the same is true of wives and husbands. Wives are called to submission. Husbands have a, I'll put it this way, an even weightier obligation. However, we're looking at the structure now only of the passage. There is something unique about the directives to wives and husbands, and I'm sure you know this. Uh, maybe you don't think of it right away, but it's there and you know it. Their roles display a relation to Christ and his church, with the other, which the other relationships do not, according to the way Paul writes. There is a mirroring of Christ and his church in the duties of wives and husbands, which, Paul says, belongs to that relationship especially. And that's why we're looking at this passage, and my sermon title is Christ's Aim for His Church. But we're talking about that, we're looking at that through the eyeglasses of the duties of wives and husbands. Well, we won't take these verses, these verses uh, 22 to 33, and I won't say everything about them. I'm going to try to be brief and try to take a, a high-level view of it, but we're going to briefly work through the directives to husbands and wives and see how, what that tells us about Christ's aim for his church. We start with the wives. Why do we start with the wives? Because that's where Paul starts in verse 22. He says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And as we believe that Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is the order which the Holy Spirit inspired. Now you say, well, Brother Frank, are you sure that we need to follow that order? Is there, is there any warrant for saying that this order is sacrosanct? Is it, is it the order? Um, and I won't say that it's never right to change that order for various purposes, for, for legitimate purposes. However, I'm not making too much of the order. I'll tell you why, why I believe that. I, I, I checked my facts this afternoon. I'd like you to turn to Colossians chapter 3 for a moment. And you'll see for a moment, you'll see in, as we do this, that there's good reason to take the order and make it our order. Colossians chapter 3, 18. This is the parallel to our Ephesians passage, and you'll see this right away. Colossians 3.18, wives be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children be obedient to your parents in all things for this is well pleasing to the Lord. Fathers do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, that knowing that you too have a master in heaven. You see how striking this is in the Colossians passage? What's the order? It's exactly the order of Ephesians. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, masters. So you see, the order is exactly the same. And the reason is because this is the order dictated by God in considering such matters. And I will not uh, bother to turn you there, but just make the assertion, you can check it out. You'll find a similar order in 1 Peter 3. One and following. So here we have three passages in which Paul and Peter address family relationships uh, and others 
and they use exactly the same order. So, it is my conviction that we ought to stick to the order since it's an emphatic order uh, unless we have good reason not to. So, back to Ephesians 5.22. We look at the role of wives. Wives. We start with wives. And I want you to notice five things about the wife's role. The wife's role in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and following. It is her active disposition. What Paul calls the wife to be and to do is an active submission. Notice how it's put. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. If she is to take an active role in this. It does not say that she should do this when her husband begs her to or insists that she takes the, this role. She takes the role. In one sense, it is a voluntary action. This is true of all the roles, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, masters. They take the role which God has assigned them. And they say, okay, this is what God says is his will for me in this particular relationship. And therefore, I take it up. I take it up to do it. Um, this is the way God's grace works. Each believer hears the word of God, embraces the role that God assigns, and determines to fulfill his or her role. Actually, it's, it's really the basic meaning of the word submission, hupotasso. To place oneself under, to set oneself under something is what that, that word submission means. And it means to engage the mind, the heart, and the will to do the will of another. That's what, that's what submission means fundamentally. The wife and the others, the children, the slaves, may need to be reminded but they are to fulfill their role in a voluntary way. I'll put it a little differently, and I hope that it, it uh, stirs up your mind to think, this, to think about this. Even when the husband doesn't require his wife to submit, it's her role and so she engages to do so. A woman who understands this, if her husband does not enforce it, encourage it, she will encourage it. As a Christian woman, she'll say, well, honey, we, we, have, to, uh, we have to decide how uh, the money which has come in, the income tax return is, is come in, how are we going to use that money in our budget, in our, our financial management? She doesn't say, well, you know, I, I think I could figure it out and I could divvy it up pretty well. But since God says that the wife should voluntarily assume a submissive role, she asks him, she puts the onus on him to tell her how to do this. It is her active disposition. She takes an active role. Secondly, second thing that I want you to note about this is that her submission is particular, just like the relationship. Her submissive, her submission is particular, just like the relationship. You notice what Paul says in verse 22? Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. I left out a word on purpose. Be in subjection to your own husband as to the Lord. The, Paul directs the Christian woman who is married 
to be submissive to her own husband. Let me tease that out a little bit for you. Uh, she may say that some other husband leads his wife in a different way. And she may like the way that that man manages his house. And she says, I wish my husband were like him. I wish I had a husband like him to submit to. But she doesn't have that option, right? She didn't have the option that her husband's not uh, a husband of clay whom she may mold and shape the way she wishes it would be. I'll give you an example. One, one man might make it clear that he wants to pray with his wife as soon as he wakes up. I knew a man like this, and I, I remember both he and his wife describe it, that uh, they would, when he woke up, she had to wake up, and they would kneel down at the bed at that moment and engage in prayer. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. She didn't like it. Say, but that was her husband's practice. That's what he, he, had, he, he wanted them to begin the day together. One man makes it clear that he wants to pray that way with his wife right away. Another man wants to pray with her right after their meals. So they pray before the meals and they pray after the meals. I know that there are groups of Christians that have that practice. In many other ways, a man, man, men may differ as husbands in the way that they arrange their affairs. One man gives his wife certain liberties that another does not, and by the way, children. Um, this applies to the family, fathers, fathers and children. No. Uh, I heard a, a man, a pastor, who used to say, my children say, so-and-so's children are allowed to do this. And he asked them, well, how do you spell their last name? Like J-O-N-E-S. And how do you spell your last name? Smith, S-M-I-T-H. So what they do, what does that matter to us? You see? So just like wives submit to their husbands, children, you have privileges other children do not have. You have restrictions other children do not have. And you should, it is your wisdom not to chafe at the differences. And so it is with the wife. The wife is called by God to submit to her husband and not to chafe under God's commands. The third thing I want you to note, we have looked so far at the fact that her it is her active disposition. She takes the role. She, she fulfills the role willingly, and her submission is particular. It's her own husband. Thirdly, her submission to her husband is a religious obligation. I, I owe thanks to a man who is dead by the name of John Eadie, who has one of the finest commentaries on Ephesians I am aware of. And this is what he said. He said her submission to her husband is a religious obligation. And he gets that from that phrase, as to the Lord. She is to submit to her husband with a sense of the religious obligation which she has. And if she cannot find any other motive for this duty, she should recall that it is the clear will of her Lord. So she submits to her husband, not as if he were the Lord. That's not the point. The point is though her Lord calls her to this relationship and this duty. Her, uh, the fourth thing, five things, fourth thing, her conduct is an example. Her conduct is an example. It is uh, a reflection of how the church should submit to Christ. You see that very plainly in the text. How should the church submit to Christ? Um, if you're a Christian woman, I, I don't know I guess, I don't know anyone who's not here this evening. However, um, how would she feel if the church refused to obey Christ? Suppose that someone in the, and I've, I've heard of this happening in an actual church service, where a man read the Bible, and then he said, I don't know what it means, but I know, I'm, we, we're not doing that. You would be appalled, shocked, disgusted. 
If it were your church, you might be tempted to walk out and leave. If they were like some of the rebellious churches in Revelation 2 and 3, she might be tempted to say aloud, Amen, when Jesus says, Be zealous and repent. Her conduct is an example, which makes her submission to her husband all the more serious because she is reflecting what the church should be to Christ. And not to be submissive to her husband is undermining the way Christ says the church submits to him. And so she ought to lead by weight of example, the example of her own submission to her own husband. Fifth thing and final thing that we note about these this these words to the wife. Her submission her submissive conduct is to be universal. It is to be universal. Notice the end of verse 24. Or actually just verse 24, but it's the church is subject to Christ, so the wives are to be to their own husbands in everything. Now I didn't write those words like the like the man says, I'm just the messenger. This is what this is what the Lord Jesus says. This is what the inspired apostle says. That the wife is to be submissive to her own husband in everything. It's no use saying this is too much. This is what Paul writes. This is what the Holy Spirit teaches. That her submission to her husband is universal. Again, a husband may legitimately give his wife leeway in many regards. He may say to his wife, she says, well, what do you want me to do with this money? Well, honey, uh, there's something that you want on Amazon Prime, maybe a dress, maybe a puzzle, spend the money. And she can gladly submit to him in the things in which she agrees with him and which delight her. Okay. So let me conclude this point by saying that this is the way his church is to behave towards him. That's, 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 it's very striking that the Apostle Paul takes this relationship and makes it the pattern of the church, Christ and his church. The church is to behave this way to him. Everything that God reveals in his word, that is the duty, the privilege of the church in service to Christ, they ought, they, they ought to do. It's church to see Christ. As the Savior from sin. That's the way Paul talks about it, right? The church, he is the Savior of the body. So submission is not just right. It is right. It is his saving influence on the church. And we may say the same thing about a Christian wife. If you find it difficult I would not be surprised it wouldn't be shocking but if you find it difficult remember that submission is the saving influence of Jesus Christ on his people on the individual woman and on the church at large perhaps a question will rise up inside of your minds. I will be surprised if it has some mind has not already th thought about it. Um, she says, "Well, my husband is not a Christian." See, I understand how this works. If you're married to a Christian man, how does this work when my husband is not a Christian? It's a very good question. And it's a question that I will answer in the first week of October when I will preach on the duty of Christian women to unconverted men. Then other questions will arise. What about me? I'm a single woman. What about me? I'm a widow. Well, there are passages that speak about those as well, but I think the hard one, if we get the hard one, a Christian woman married to an unconverted man, many other things will fall into place. So we'll do that.
So we've looked at the structure of the passage. We have looked at the duties of Christian wives. And now Christian husbands, Christian husbands. If the wife thinks her role is difficult, she ought to consider the husband's task. I'd like, I wish we had a big, as it were, spiritual balance where we could pack in all the wife's duties on one side and pack in then the husband's duty on the other side and see how the scales sit. It's my contention, brethren, that the scales go way down on the husband's side because the husband's responsibilities are much more difficult, much more weighty. And interestingly, it's reflected in the passage because Paul spends more time on the husband's role than he does on the wife's role. Let's note, we noted five things about the wife's role. Let's notice four things. I'll restrict myself for time's sake. Four things about the husband's role. What is the husband's duty toward his wife? Well, the main duty is like his wife's, a disposition. That's what I called it. Hers is an active disposition, submission. The husband's is an active disposition too. It is love. Love is the primary force of the husband's role toward his wife. Husbands, love your wives. I appreciate the amplification in Colossians 3. Because he says, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Why does Paul put that in? Because it is not difficult for husbands to be frustrated and to be upset and to allow his disposition to change from love to bitterness, a thing about which men need to be on their guard. His disposition, his active disposition is love. It is an affection an affectionate concern to do good to his wife in the breadth of her need. I wonder what you would say if I said, um, what kind of needs do women have? They, have? they have many needs. They have a need for love. That's one of the reasons, that's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons why Paul puts that there. Love makes a woman feel secure. I, I sometimes have the opportunity to counsel men who tell me that they're having problems with their marital relationship. I said, one thing you need to do, my friend, you need to make sure that your wife unambiguously knows that you love her. Whatever things may come, whatever pressures may bear upon her, if she is secure that her husband loves her, that there's no other woman in his eyes, in his mind, in his heart, but that she is the sole object of his masculine affection, it would do a great deal to stabilize their relationship. It is love. And that love is concerned to meet the breadth of her need. One is that of the security of being loved. That's what the man has an obligation to do on behalf of her wife. Love is one of those emotions that is difficult to define. Uh, it's one of those words that gets thrown around all the time. What does, what does that Mean Well, Paul makes it much clearer in the passage. I know we could go to 1 Corinthians 13 and we could say love is patient and love is kind, is not jealous, is not easily provoked, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. I have left out some, but you know what I'm saying. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us some good parameters of love. But this passage has something Vital to contribute to our understanding of love. And that's the second thing I want you to note. The duty of the man for his wife is love. 
Secondly, the pattern of that love is what makes it difficult, what makes it challenging. The pattern of that love is Christ and his love for his church. Notice again what Paul says to these men. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the greater challenge which faces Christian husbands, which in, in the case of the woman's duties has no parallel. Christ doesn't say that she's the love of her husband like Christ loved the church. I'm sure that would be an interesting proposition. But what he says is that's the duty of husbands. She is to submit. That's her active responsibility. He is to love his wife the way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ's love for his church. That's what makes the definition easier to understand. Christ's love to his church is self-giving and self-sacrificing. Right? He loved the church and gave himself up for her. We all know what that means. Christ did not have to come to this earth and assume humanity. He didn't need it for himself. He didn't need it for his glory, his happiness, but he gave himself. He became a man and he endured all of the trials and the difficulties of being a sinless man in a fallen world surrounded by the enemies of God and he did everything necessary. He obeyed for his people. He died for his people. He rose for his people. He went into heaven for his people and sits right at God's right hand and makes intercession for his people. There's love. There, that's what love is. That's how love acts. He demonstrated his love in many, many ways. And the husband ought to love his wife. At least it ought to be his ambition and his effort. You might say, well, it's too hard. But don't say it's too hard so I won't try. Say it's 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 very hard, but I'll die trying. I'm going I'm going to persevere in love for my wife. Husbands ought to be self-sacrificing. Not only do they need to support them by being the main breadwinner, but in many other ways he must demonstrate his love in many ways that impinge upon his life. Now this is important, brethren, because there are men who think, well, I work a full-time job, I work 8 to 12 hours a day, and, uh, and that's enough. I, I just have to put bread on the table, and that's enough. That's not enough. It's not enough for a Christian man. He has self-sacrifice due to his wife in many, many ways. But here Paul lays out some specific responsibilities of the man's duties. Some specific responsibilities of the man's duty in loving his wife. And this is, uh, I think, my third thing, right? Yeah, the, his main duty is the, the, to love his wife. The second thing is the pattern, Christ's love for his church. The third comes from what Christ does for his church. Let's look again at the words here in verse 25 and following. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So, Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. We'll come to that. The highest duty of the Christian husband is the spiritual nurture of his wife. You see? He's to love his wife. And there's one critical area where this wife must be demonstrated in practice and effect, it is the sanctification, the spiritual nourishment of his wife. 
This comes from Christ's labor for the church. Paul says, what does Christ do for the church? He loves the church. He gave himself up for the church. What is he doing for his church? He's sanctifying her. You know what that means? That means spiritual improvement. She grows in her understanding of the word of God. She grows in her understanding of how that applies to her life. And she becomes more and more less like the world and more and more like her Savior. She becomes more and more a beautiful example of Christian grace. That's what she becomes. That's what the husband labors for, for his wife, because that's what Christ does for the church. He sanctifies her. He washes her with the word. He nourishes and cherishes her. And so, just as Christ brings his word to his church, so it is the duty of a husband to bring her the word of God so that she is spiritually improved. I've said many times, preaching in various places, that one of the things I regard as an essential duty of a Christian man is to make sure his wife reads the Bible and prays. Now you might say, well, why does he have to do that? I know a, a woman once told me that her husband told her that her spiritual nurture was all on her and not his responsibility. I don't, I don't understand that kind of thinking. We're responsible men for the spiritual nurture of our wives. And why do they need help? Well, count the number of children in their household and you'll understand why she needs help. A man ought to know how his wife is doing in her devotional reading. I can say this with an especially good conscience because my wife knows that I work very hard to make sure she has time to read the Word of God and that she is reading the Word of God. So, so that's one of the things, again, I take it right from the text. Well, how does Christ nurture his church? How does he improve his church? He does it by washing with water and the Word. So he makes sure she gets the word. And the Christian husband should be sure that his wife has the opportunity, has the time to read the Bible and pray. And then he needs as well to read the Bible to her. So every Christian woman in a Christian household should get the word twice a day. I can put it that way. I, I, I know there are difficulties in accomplishing this. She ought to get it herself in her own personal Bible reading, and she ought to get it with her husband as he reads the Bible and teaches his wife. The church's spiritual nurture is Christ's great concern. You see that? In the passage, he gives himself to this. Again, her nurture and improvement is described in verse 27. This is the church now. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's Christ's aim for the church. That's the husband's aim for his wife. He ought to see her growing in grace. He ought to see her graces flourishing. He ought to be an active agent in her spiritual improvement. This is Christ's great concern for his church, his aim for his church. Well, one more thing about the husband. The husband's love must be Christ-like and like his love for his own body. And I think it's a stroke of genius on the Apostle Paul, inspired genius, when he speaks to us this way, verse 28 and following. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife, his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church recently. I... um. I was slicing, I think it was cheese. 
and I sliced into the tip of my finger and it, it bled. I, d I don't like to bleed. As soon as I see a, a bloody part, I, I wrap it up. I, I get out the vaxitracin and the band-aid and I make sure that it's not going to uh, bleed very long. Because I, I, I it, it's just my fingertip, but it's me. It's my body. I care for it. If I get a hangnail, I find out what I need to do to relieve that pressure and avoid greater damage to my foot. The man who loves his body already understands something about how to love his wife. Because Paul says, the man ought to love his wife like his own body. And he goes on to assert that this has its, its example, its primary greatest example in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says you do this because Christ does this. He cares for his body. We're members of his body. And thus he cares for us and we then ought to care for our wives in the same way. I could say more. But I want to move on to my final point, the final reference, the final reference. It's so striking. I know I use that word a lot. Can't help it. The final reference is very striking, brethren. This is a passage about the roles of husbands and wives. But we see in the passage very clearly the aim of Jesus Christ for his church. You see, the zeal of the Apostle Paul for the church in this description of the roles of husbands and wives, because he says, look, you want to know about husbands and wives, but I, I want you to know about the aim of Jesus Christ and the concern of Jesus Christ for his church. This is so important. It's important because it motivates us as husband, wives and husbands, the wife is to look at her role as a Christian woman married to a man, and she's to say, look, uh, it's not easy for me. There are challenges for me. There are challenges in the way I think and feel, but I'm mirroring Christ and his church. I'm showing the church. I'm showing the world how the church relates to Jesus Christ. That's how. This is how I do it. It's a motivation to the husband. The calling of a husband is a very high calling. The love that is required is a, is a very high demand of love. But again, what motivates us? You see, the husband, the husband is picturing the person of Jesus in his loving concern for his church. And that ought to motivate us. That ought to motivate us to try to be the best that we can be in this regard. And of course, it helps us to understand what Christ is doing with his church. What's Christ doing with his church? The aim again of Christ is her ultimate spiritual improvement. It's for her ultimate spiritual perfection. Think about that for a moment. Jesus Christ wants his church to be perfect, ultimately, perfectly holy. See the way that, that Paul puts this in verse 27, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot, no wrinkle, or any such thing. But, so he takes the negative, doesn't want her to be stained, he doesn't want her to be wrinkled. He doesn't want anything like that. No imperfections in his bride, but that she would be holy and blameless, separate from the world and without any cause of reproach or blame with reference to sin. That's what he wants his church to be. And this is, brethren, what we should expect Christ to do for us. City View Baptist Church, Trinity Baptist Church, any true church. This is what Christ wants to do for his church, and he is doing for his church. And by the way, this, this can guide our prayers. 
we shouldn't pray too low, right? We shouldn't pray too low. We shouldn't pray, Lord, convert a couple of people. I, I, I'll, I'll confess that there's a particular kind of prayer that bothers me, and I hear, I hear it from time to time. Save them if you are willing. That's a misreading of the heart of Christ. He, God loves to save. Good and upright is the Lord, Psalm 25. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He teaches the humble in justice. And he teaches the humble his way. God has not sent Jesus back yet because he's not willing that any should perish, but all come to the knowledge of the truth. I don't believe in universal salvation, but I do believe this, that God wants to save many people. I don't need to pray, Lord, save them if you want to. No, save them. Save them because God is a saving God. And this is what he's doing with us. So we can pray this way. We can pray, Lord, here's your church. Here's your bride. Make her as beautiful as can be. Make her as holy as can be. Make her as perfect as can be. And one day, that prayer is going to be answered when Jesus returns. So we can, we can ask him to do it. We, we should look for this in the dealings of Christ with us. This is the way Christ deals with us. And you say, hmm, sometimes it doesn't seem that way to me. Well, you need to remember what Jesus says about him and the Father in John 15, right? I'm the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears no fruit, he takes away. There is some, I know some men say they don't like this, but there is addition by subtraction. There are times when dead branches must be removed. And Christ improves his church. His father improves this church by pruning his church. And the church and the, the branches that bear fruit, he prunes. A painful process for the branch that it may bear more fruit. That's what Christ is doing with his church. He accomplishes these things by his providence. One of the more difficult things to do, and maybe for us because we're just finite human beings with limited understanding, one of the hard things to do is to interpret providence. Why do certain Christians get sick? Why do certain Christians lose some of their faculties? Why? Well, it's beyond my understanding. But this tells me that Christ is perfecting his church in mysterious ways. He is perfecting his church. He accomplishes his church, his church's perfection by mysterious providences. Nobody would have thought in Jacob's family that the sale of little Joseph as a slave would result in the increase of God's kingdom and the safety of his people. The very opposite seemed to be the case. Jacob said, all these things are against me. How wrong! The mysterious providence of his, in his eyes, the death of his favorite son and the possible enslavement of his youngest son seemed to be all against him, but he was wrong. God's providence accomplishes what we do not understand. It accomplishes the good of his church. And he also accomplishes the things that we're reading about by the gifts he has given to his church. He's giving gifts to his church. In Ephesians chapter 4, just the chapter before, in Ephesians chapter 4, this is what uh, Paul teaches us. He, uh, Ephesians 4, 11. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
the church as a growth chart. Just like children have a growth chart in their bedroom and you mark the stages of their growth. The church has a growth chart and it's Christ. And that's what God is doing in the gifts he gives to his church. And we, how do we respond to that? But we ought to value the gifts that he has given to his church and we need to watch out for the resistance of the word of God. This is one of the great dangers of the church. Resistance to the word of God. I think of that passage in 2 Timothy, and we're almost done. 2 Timothy 4, starting in verse 1. This is a danger of the church. I solemnly charge you, Paul tells Timothy, the preacher, the pastor, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and kingdom, preach the word. Be ready, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why, Timothy, why do you have to work so hard as the gift of Christ in preaching? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Paul's not just whistling in the wind. Paul's saying this is a real danger for the church. And I suspect that some of you know people who have turned away their ears from hearing the truth because some other voice was giving them room for the things they wanted to believe and to do. We want to give no quarter to that. We work with God when we embrace his truth and are determined not to turn away from it. To whom else shall we go? Where else shall we go? Christ accomplishes this perfection of his bride by his providence, by the gifts that he has given, and he will accomplish this by the believer's sincere obedience to his will. One of the things that God uses is the individual Christian's obedience to God's will, including the roles and responsibilities we have as husbands and wives, fathers, Children who believe, workers and masters, he accomplishes his purpose by the obedience of the people of God to his will. That's why Paul writes Ephesians 5 to what he does. So, dear brethren, I urge you to consider these things prayerfully. I urge you to pray for them. Pray for grace to do his will. Pray for grace to fulfill your role. And as I have often said, the roles don't change when one person's not doing their job. See, it's not obey your husband, uh, submit to your husbands if they're good husbands. No, that's not the way it works. And the husband's job is to still love his wife. She may not be the most noble wife yet, not yet, but your job is to nurture her to cherish her, to love her, and to see her grow. So it's not that the other person does their part, and so it's very easy for us to do our part. Even when it's hard to do our part, our part doesn't change. Our role doesn't change. So consider this. Pray to God to, to do his will. And this is why the Lord Jesus Christ has given us such directions as these which we have considered this this evening. Let's ask for God's help. Amen. We bow before you, our God and our King, as our brother has sometimes prayed, you are our King. You are our Lord and the Savior of the body. And so we commit ourselves into your care. Please forgive us our sins. Forgive us who are husbands but those times when we have not loved our wives the way we ought, cleanse us from those sins. Cleanse us from all kinds of bitterness and animosity and resentment. 
Please do the same for our wives. Forgive their sins. Teach them by your word and your spirit how they ought to please you for your glory and honor and their good. Help us as husbands to nurture our wives and to improve them to the best of our ability. Help us, Lord, not to give up. Help us not to slack off. Help us to do your will. And we pray by these means, and all the means that you employ, you will glorify yourself by nurturing and cherishing and sanctifying your church. Please hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.